Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'm, I'm grateful to uh, Father Andrew and to Father Dominic and Father Ambrose uh, for the invitation to speak at this conference and to Father Dominic uh, for suggesting this particular topic with this title, which is posing a question. Aquinas is indeed a doctor of the Church, one of the 37 or so who have been so designated by the Roman Catholic Church. The Doctors of the Church is an august group with a varied membership. It is comprised of Orthodox Christians from throughout the centuries, including several medieval saints. The group includes four women, and there are doctors not only from the West, but from the East as well. These all have been formally acknowledged in due course by the Church for their learning in the faith and thinking about the faith and living out of the faith. It seems prudent, then, to read them and take seriously what they have to teach. The designation as doctor would seem to be making that recommendation. This particular doctor, that is Aquinas, has been tagged variously as angelic doctor and the doctor of humanity, for example, and, of course, as common doctor. Why that particular title, Common Doctor, is especially apt, is not entirely clear, uh, to me at least. Perhaps it is offered as a reminder that Aquinas has been championed by so many popes over the centuries. His importance is their common claim. Or that Aquinas' theology and philosophy cuts across the schools and is of value to all Catholic Christians, uh, the common inheritance of them all. Or that in his pursuit of understanding of the faith, he, is so, he has written so well about the entire, the common faith, in each of its components. Or maybe all three of these explanations factor into the title. In terms of my contribution to this conference, the question is whether Aquinas, the common doctor, has much of interest to say about grace. The presumption, of course, is that he does. Or better, whether what he has to teach about grace is taken seriously, is still to be taken seriously. Talk of doctor of the faith or doctor of the church is, of course, congenial to Aquinas. In his own doing of theology, the theology that pertains to sacred doctrine, Aquinas situates himself in the Christian theological traditions and is open about his dependence on and engagement with those who have gone before him in the faith. He reads in the great theologians and teachers of the past in the construction of his own theology, including in his theology of grace. Uh, Summa Part 1, Question 1, Article 8, The Second Response, is worth a brief mention here. Sacred doctrine, the topic of the Summa's opening question, is the revelation of saving truth. The teacher of sacred doctrine is the God who reveals. Yet, various humans enter into the project of sacred doctrine. 
the handing on of saving truth. In that passage, so Article 8 of the first question of the Summa, uh, second response, Aquinas identifies three sorts of humans involved in this sacred teaching and specifies the kind of authority each sort enjoys. At the pinnacle of this hierarchy of authorities are the human authors of scripture. It is to them that revelation has been made and in a way that does not allow them to be in error about saving truth. That's a point he makes in the next article. Their authority, Aquinas says here, is intrinsic or proper and certain. It is certain because the revelation is made to them by the God who does not lie. Their certainty is a participation in God's certainty. Next come the fathers or doctors of the church. They have been concerned with the reception and interpretation and investigation and defense of the faith, of the saving truth that is found in Scripture. Their authority is intrinsic or proper, uh, as is that of the human authors of Scripture, for they are concerned with sacred doctrine, but only probable, not certain, as is that of the human authors of Scripture. Only probable, for revelation has not been made to the doctors, and they can make mistakes in interpretation or presentation, although largely successful in their enterprise as judged by the believing community. The final set of humans mentioned in this passage is the philosophers. Their authority is probable and extrinsic. The tag extrinsic is observing that philosophers are not concerned with sacred doctrine in the first place. They are playing a different game. But they can be brought into the sacred doctrine project to help in the elucidation and investigation and defense of saving truth. To relate all this to the eventual classification of Aquinas among the doctors of the church, when he wrote this passage and was doing his theology, Aquinas wasn't a doctor of the church, recognized as a doctor of the church. He was a theologian whose work mirrored, continued the work of the doctors mentioned in this passage, concerned with the retrieval and conveying of saving truth as found in scripture. Eventually, that is, in the 1560s, Aquinas would be recognized as himself a doctor, with the authority, I think, that he ascribes to the doctors in this passage, proper and probable. Okay, I'm moving to the, you have an outline here, so I'm moving to the next section, and I'm going to describe Thomas's uh, theology of grace. Aquinas' theology of grace is rich and textured, giving expression to his most basic convictions about God and humans and Christ. To restrict my comments to his master writing, Aquinas' presentation on grace is found throughout the entire Summa of Theology. There is, of course, the series of questions on grace itself, found at the end of the Prima Secundae, which is on the movement of the rational creature to the beatifying God. Grace is ordered to glory, to the knowing in the next life of God as God is, and grace is needed for correct orientation to God and for progress on the way to God as end. In the treatise on grace, Aquinas refers to two main functions of grace, to heal and so to address the problem of human sin and its consequences, and to elevate, to elevate, here taking seriously that the end to which the graced are moving is the transcendent God. He also acknowledges two kinds of grace involved in justification and sanctification, habitual grace and the auxilia that are grace. 
there are, as a comment in passing, other kinds of exilia that wouldn't be termed grace, but there are exilia that are grace. Each of these graces both heals and elevates. Perfecting the essence of soul, habitual grace is an entative habit, giving new being an orientation. By this grace, its recipient is a partaker of the divine nature. That's Second Peter. By gracious exilia, God reduces the human to acts that are pleasing to God, allowing the overcoming of sinful impulses and preservation and growth in the good. There is then a dynamism to God's involvement in the journey of graced humans. There is much in the treatise on grace about love, the love that God shows for humans. That love is at the root of grace. God's love sustains the graced person in the movement toward God as end. The treatise on grace builds on what has come before in the Summa, reinforcing what has been taught previously and adding to that. The treatise on grace gives plenty of clues about the need to look elsewhere to get the full teaching. And here I am simply tracing out some of these hints. Thus, in terms of the prima pars, the account of grace presupposes question 20 on God's love, which is God's favor towards others and which has its created effect. God's love, the willing of good to others, is causal. Question 23, which is on predestination to eternal life, which is carried out, as its fifth article puts it, by grace and graced uh, good human acts. Questions 37 and 38, which have to do with personal names of the Holy Spirit, love and gift. As a reminder in the Prima Secundi, uh, Aquinas repeatedly refers to grace as the grace of precisely the Holy Spirit. And he does not think that what is given is separated from the giver, capital G. Qu question 43, on the divine missions in which the persons of the Son and of the Holy Spirit are sent, being present in a new way to those to whom they come, and which presence has its created effect, not to be confused with the divine indwelling. And question 93, on humans as in the image of God, which involves not simply human capacity, but the growth in likeness to God. The use of the intellect and will is graced. The journey of the human to God is a movement that involves growing assimilation to God by knowing and loving. There's a close link as well between the treatise on grace and questions earlier in the Prima Secundi. This part opens with a series of questions on beatitude, which in its fullest cannot be found in created things, but only in the knowing of God in God's essence. That it is God who beatifies is, of course, a point that has been made previously in the Prima Pars, in the Prima Pars question 23 on predestination, for example, and before that in the discussion of knowing God in question 12, most of whose articles have to do with the next life and what knowing God and God's essence entails, and before that even in the very first article of the Summa, where the need for sacred doctrine is connected to salvation, to, to the need for God uh, to reveal that, God, that human beings are directed to God as to an end that surpasses the grasp of human reason. Other questions in the Prima Secundae prepare for claims made in the Treatise on Grace about the infused virtues and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In the Treatise on Grace, Aquinas teaches that the infused virtues and the gifts are infused with habitual grace at the term of conversion. Habitual grace perfects the essence of the soul, the virtues and gifts, the powers of soul. To the extent that habitual grace and entative habit can be said to be operational, it is as through the virtues and the gifts, through the acts made possible by the virtues and gifts. 
Resonance is given to these statements in the Treatise on Grace by preceding questions in the Primus Secundi that look at the infused virtues, including the theological virtues, and at the gifts. All are habits given by God and directing the recipient to God as end. Their giving is not occasioned by human action, as if that might put a demand on God. They are freely given to whom God wills. These virtues and gifts provide new capacity, and as with habitual grace, they can be said to elevate and to heal, addressing the problem of sin and its remnants. The gifts are, again, gifts of the Holy Spirit. These habits make their possessor docile to the promptings, the instinctus of the Holy Spirit, who is leading, guiding, directing grace-gifted human beings in their journey to the beatifying God. Through the theological virtues, the journeyer believes, hopes for, loves God. As for the acts made possible by the gifts, Aquinas refers to the Mathean Beatitudes, to its set of acts with appropriate rewards. These questions on virtue and gift set up for the Treatise on Grace, and the discussion of virtue and gift continues in the Secunda Secundae, with closer looks at faith, hope, and charity, and the cardinal virtues, and at the gifts, each of which Aquinas associates with a particular virtue, although all of the gifts are rooted in infused charity, the loss of which, that is infused, infused charity through mortal sin, brings with it a loss of all the gifts. In terms of the theological virtues, faith and hope are, of course, important. By hope, for example, one aspires to God, the end that is difficult yet possible to attain, and one relies on, trusts in, the help of God to attain that end. That help is what makes reaching God possible. But charity, which establishes friendship with God, is the greatest of the virtues, directing the acts of the other virtues and the gifts to God as beatifying end. The upshot of all of this, of Aquinas' investigation and the secunda pars of the virtues and gifts and their acts, is to give texture, shape, to the account of the journey to God as end. Grace, freely given by God, changes its recipient. So do the attendant virtues and gifts. And the grace life will involve specific acts made possible by virtue and gift and is aided by God, offered by the human to God in gratitude. And finally, there's the tertia parts on Christ and the sacraments. It is not an exaggeration to say, <clears throat> to, to say that Christ stands at the heart of Aquinas' teaching about salvation. As Aquinas puts it very early in the Summa in explaining the organization of the Summa, Christ secundum quad homo is our way to God as end. In the Treatise on Grace, Aquinas makes the point by explaining in what sense Christ can be said to be the source and cause of grace. Here, drawing on the Greek fathers, Aquinas says that the humanity of Christ stands to the divinity as instrument, as proper, conjoined, and adamant instrument, as he puts it more fully elsewhere. And so, while grace means a partaking of the divine nature, the sharing of which can be given only by God, God gives grace through Christ, through the human nature of the word incarnate, through, I would specify, the willing and doing and undergoing of Christ himself graced. The treatise on Christ in the Tertia Pars offers in great detail a teasing out of the claim about Christ, secundum quad homo, as the way to the beatifying God, and in the process fills in even more uh, the Summa's teaching on grace. 
Thus, to hit a few high notes, in the opening question of the Tertia Pars, Aquinas argues for the fittingness of the incarnation and strengths the link between incarnation and salvation. Salvation is the point of the incarnation. Aquinas can even quote in that opening question the formula of exchange to secure that link. God became human so that humans might become God. In questions 7 and 8, Aquinas looks at the grace of Christ, that is the grace and virtues and gifts that perfect the word incarnate in the words taken up humanity. Grace perfects that humanity, rendering Christ pleasing before God and making possible through the virtues and gifts the willing and doing and undergoing pertinent to the grace and salvation of others. That same grace can be viewed from a different angle as the grace of headship. Christ is the head of those who affirm him in faith and charity and who are joined to him and to each other in love by the Holy Spirit. Two other questions later in the treatise on Christ will be mentioned here as also nicely informing the teaching on grace. In question 24, Aquinas follows the lead of the opening of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, stating that predestination is in Christ. Predestination is the ordering of humans to the end that is God, the triune God, and one comes to that end through Christ. This is God's plan. The immediately preceding question, question 23, on adoptive sonship, teases out what, has, uh, what, what that through Christ entails. Through Christ through the accepting of the call of Christ and striving to live in imitation of Christ as made possible and guided by Christ's spirit, adoptive children of God will attain to the inheritance that belongs to the natural son. To state the obvious, the divine personal, the divine personal dimensions of grace are fully in view here. Okay, now the next section, Aquinas and Augustine. The teaching on grace that is spread uh, across the Summa is then quite imposing, offering elegant, thoughtful testimony to all that God and God's imminence does and provides so that humans might attain to the transcending God who is their God-appointed end. In constructing his theology of grace, Aquinas is following the blueprint offered by the passage I started with, that is the very first question of the Summa, uh, uh, Article 8, uh, the second response. He is making every effort to engage to its fullest the scriptural witness, brings in philosophy to shed light on Christian truth and express it, and surely makes considerable use of the preceding theological tradition in formulating his own uh, teaching on grace. With regards to this last, there is a nice range of doctoral authorities on which he relies, both East and West, in the Treatise on Grace. But pride of place among the doctors when it has to do with grace surely goes to Augustine. The Augustine who is known through the Lombard, whose sentences are the textbook of scholastic theology, but just as importantly, the Augustine whom Aquinas had rediscovered through his personal researches. Aquinas knew much more keenly than his contemporaries what is going on in the final treatises of Augustine, which had passed out of general theological circulation in proclaiming a causal predestination of some worked out by operative graces of conversion and perseverance. The debt to Augustine is great. One is surely justified in saying that for Aquinas, it is Augustine who is the doctor of grace. Uh, that, in fact, is how this doctor of the church, that is St. Augustine, has customarily been designated and celebrated. It is Augustine who is the doctor of grace. But then, isn't that a challenge to Aquinas as a common doctor with regards to the theology of grace? Uh, 
After all, if you've got the doctor of grace, do you really need someone else on grace, especially someone who is himself so indebted to Augustine for his own theology of grace? Might it not be enough to jump Aquinas, for that matter, jump the entire Middle Ages and simply return to the post-scriptural paragon I'm sorry, I shouldn't be like that. But a, a, a post-scriptural uh, paragon of talk about grace. Someone might even think that this is one of the lessons of the presentation on grace found in the Catholic Catechism published in the early 1990s. Throughout the Catechism, there are numerous quotations from important theologians and saints in the tradition. Overall, Aquinas is the second most, ecclesiastical, uh, second most quoted ecclesiastical writer in the Catechism, second only to Augustine. Now, in the paragraphs on grace, the Catechism was seen to be following roughly the decree on justification from Trent. To what Trent provides, the Catechism adds certain points and inserts, as is its practice, quotes from the tradition. Thus, in the paragraphs on grace, there are citations, one apiece, of two other doctors of the Church, Athanasius on divinization through the Holy Spirit, and Therese of Lisieux. And most impressively, there are six quotations in total of St. Augustine. But in the paragraphs on grace, there is, in contrast, no invocation of Aquinas. He apparently isn't needed to confirm, deepen the teaching. Perhaps the one doctor of grace, with a little help from those two other doctors, suffices to secure the catechism's teaching. To say that Aquinas stands in deep continuity with Augustine is, however, hardly to say that Aquinas has thereby been rendered redundant or superfluous when it comes to grace. Aquinas's Augustinian theology of grace marks an advance over the original in several ways. To name but a few of these ways, the more sustained meditation on the supernatural and the neater differentiation between nature and supernature without severing their connection. The fuller attention in that light to the elevating function of grace without losing sight of grace's healing function. The parsing of the inner transformational grace of the late Augustine into grace motion and grace form, that is, the exilium that is grace and habitual grace. The fuller methodical reflections on the merit of those in grace which reflections provide an explanation of the value of grace to human activity and its place in God's plan without contravening what is dear to both the late Augustine and Aquinas? That grace is gift, that final beatitude itself is radically gift, although also reward. Maybe even the more serene tone of Aquinas' more methodical presentation, shorn of, August shorn of Augustine's polemics against his various foes on grace. As for the Catholic Catechism, the evidence is not unambiguous. For one thing, the section on grace is part of a larger section on law and grace. And in the, parag and in the paragraphs on law, there is quotation of Aquinas from the treatise on the new law that immediately precedes the treatise on grace in the Summa and in fact introduces the treatise on grace. The most striking quotation from question 107 of the first part of the second part has to do with the difference between the old and the new law. The old tells us what to do, but does not give the power to do that. The new law in distinction is principally the grace of the Holy Spirit, and the new law gives the power through the Holy Spirit to do the will of God. The point is Augustinian, to be sure, and ultimately derives from the Apostle Paul, but the framers of the Catechism have chosen at this point to invoke Aquinas. 
For another thing, in terms of Aquinas and the Catechism's teaching on grace, additions to the model provided by Trent arguably imply Aquinas. I'm thinking here of the explicit naming of an habitual grace, the reference to the supernatural, and the detailed teaching on merit, which reflects not only Trent's, but Aquinas's teaching on merit perhaps even more. And finally, it might be noted that of the six quotations of Augustine, all but one of them are found in the Summa's Treatise on Grace, along with many more quotes of Augustine. And not all of those are also found in the Lombard. Aquinas might be the conduit, the guide to their inclusion. Whatever the reason for the Catechism's reticence about Aquinas in its presentation of grace, we aren't meeting in the Catechism a sounding of the death knell of Aquinas as doctor with something to say about grace. Aquinas figured in Reformation and early modern debates about grace, and Aquinas continues to teach grace even now. Without putting much effort into the search, it has in fact been easy enough to find in discussions of grace published after the Catechism numerous references to Aquinas as precisely common doctor. Let me rehearse quickly four of these recent attestations to Aquinas as common doctor with regards to grace. In his The Dynamics of Grace, Stephen Duffy reviews chapter by chapter the teachings on grace of several important theologians, including Augustine, Luther, Rahner, the theologians of liberation, and, of course, Aquinas. Duffy renders what each teaches about grace, offering assessments of particular teachings along the way in light of other theologians examined in the book. The rendering in the chapter on Aquinas is accurate enough, a few flubs here and there, mostly about technical terminology, but nothing too serious. Duffy notes some criticisms that have been made of Aquinas on grace. One he takes at more or less face value, that Aquinas' teaching of grace, while appropriate for a high scholastic, may be overly formal and abstract, too concerned with cause, and too inattentive, inattentive to the psychological. Duffy has Luther in mind with regards to the psychological dimensions of grace in his reception. But Duffy notes another recent criticism which he names in order to refute that Aquinas, with all his talk of habitual grace and the related infused virtues and gifts, has focused on the created, maybe construed grace as only created, and corresponding, correspondingly ignored which is much more important, the divine persons who indwell, who enter into the lives of those who are open to the persons, who are open to the persons who are grace for humans. For Duffy, the criticism misses the mark, misses the personalist underpinnings of this theology of grace. With Augustine, Aquinas identifies grace closely with the Holy Spirit, teaches the missions, thinks of grace as mediated through Christ and entailing by the Holy Spirit growing conformity with Christ. While grace is created, it is not only created, and created grace is not imagined as a substitute for the divine persons. Duffy concludes the chapter on Aquinas by affirming that the teaching on grace, the entire teaching on grace, is a classic of abiding value and richness. Even if Aquinas is in somewhat of a decline among modern theologians, it will always be beneficial, Duffy thinks, for Catholics to consult the common doctor about grace. Common doctor as designation of Aquinas appears in Bruce Marshall's article, Ex Occidenti Lux, Aquinas in Eastern Orthodox Theology, uh, an article which examines the Trinitarian dimension of Aquinas' account of salvation placed in conversation with Eastern Orthodoxy. 
Marshall's account of adoptive sonship and deification, according to Aquinas, is sophisticated and adept. And there's plenty about grace in the article, as would be expected. Marshall is attentive to the personless dimensions of grace, according to Aquinas, while accounting as well for what has been, what has been called created grace. In Marshall's rendering of Aquinas, the Holy Spirit has hardly receded from the scene. Marshall answers in this regard a typical concern expressed by the Orthodox about habitual grace and the like. Marshall is clear that Aquinas' created grace is not a rival or substitute for the divine persons as grace. In Reinhard Huder's Dust Bound for Glory, that's the book, I hope I'm reading the title right, Dust Bound for Glory, just sound a little bit odd, but Dust Bound for Glory, Aquinas the Common Doctor stands front and center. Indeed, the book is an outstanding exercise in resourcement Thomism. Several chapters are devoted to Aquinas' teaching on grace, and Huda's analysis display a broad and insightful grasp of Aquinas' teaching. I will note the following to indicate Huda's range and his appreciation for Aquinas on grace. Huda enters into the debate about nature and grace, and in his own offering, a study of early chapters of Book 3 of the Conigentila is complemented by a reporting of earlier perceptive responses to de Lubeck. Huda sides with those who uphold the long-time interpretation of Aquinas on the natural desire for God and argues against de Lubeck. Huda also notes that some who follow de Lubeck extend his teaching to support the claim of the salvation of all. Against the assertion of universal salvation, which is based on the convictions that God intends the salvation of all and that God's will will be done, Huter invokes Thomas's teaching on predestination, the predestination of some to eternal life and the providing of the graces that will bring those to that end. Huter also shows a real finesse in his discussion of divine human interaction, of God applying or moving humans to their act, following the lead here of Lonigan and others. Huter stresses that Aquinas is alert to divine transcendence. The agency of God is of a different order than human agency. God's agency is efficacious, and given the different orders, there's no need to think here that God's efficacious agency will thus be at the expense of authentic human agency. It isn't. The two aren't in competition. There's no need to imagine a division of labor, as it were, along the lines of some part team, part team, where God and the human will observe, must observe, their particular causal space, but don't go beyond that. God and the human are fully involved in human acting. One might put Thomas's insight about the implications of divine transcendence as follows. The Pauline Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do is now being given its full force. That might make for a good bumper sticker. And as a, sorry, and as a final point worthy of note here, Huter incorporates into the book a lengthy treatment of Aquinas on the beginning of faith, underscoring the mature Aquinas' conviction that the coming to faith is due to God's efficacious grace. For Huter, this is an important corrective to those theologians whom he doesn't name, who make of the act of faith a de facto human accomplishment, a decision by the human to accept God's offer of grace, leaving it to the human whether to accept or reject God's grace. Fourth and finally, there's Edward Oakes, who offers, as the title of his book puts it, a theology of grace in six controversies. 
Oakes method is to discuss a controversy over grace and try, at least in most of the cases, to suggest a way forward past the controversy. And that typically involves calling on a particular theologian who will prove helpful. Thus, in the chapter on predestination and free will, the chapter in which, incidentally, Oakes refers to Aquinas as common doctor, Oakes ends up turning to the Reformed theologian Karl Barth and his intriguing take on predestination in Christ, which is significant for the reprobate. Aquinas appears in several of the chapters, and Oakes is alert to some important features of Aquinas' theology of grace. Thus, Oakes knows that for Aquinas, God's efficacious applying of humans to their acts is not at the expense of human agency. Here, divine transcendence is given its due, and God's causing is not imagined as of the same order as that of the human. Incidentally, Oakes claims no originality in this uh, observation. He mentions several who have gone before him in making it, including Hüter. And in fact, Oakes credits a former colleague at Mundelein, Robert Barron, now Bishop Barron, for first making known to him Aquinas' framing of divine-human interaction as non-competitive, non-contrastive in light of divine transcendence. Oakes also considers Aquinas briefly in a later chapter on experience and divinization, referring to a standard orthodox concern about Aquinas and his supposed focus on uh, created grace at the expense of uncreated grace. In light of recent scholarship, Oakes mentions here the work of Anna Williams, who I'll look at a little bit later in the paper. That concern might be misplaced. But when it comes down to it, Aquinas is not one of the theologians on whom Oakes draws to move things forward. In fact, the longest, most sustained consideration of Aquinas in the book comes in the first chapter on nature and grace. Oakes rehearses de Lubeck's interpretation of the Thomistic natural desire for God and the more traditional interpretation and basically concludes that Aquinas can be read both ways. In this sense, Aquinas is at the heart of the problem or the controversy to be solved. And if there is a way past this impasse, Oakes suggests, it will be, suggest, it will be provided by another, in this case by Shaban. Together, these recent affirmations of Aquinas' common doctor on grace are quite informative. They indicate the differing levels of commitment of these modern theologians to Aquinas on grace. That is, Oakes at one end of the spectrum, Huter at the other, with Duffy found somewhere in between. And more crucially, they point to those parts of, of Aquinas' teaching on grace that appear to be of greatest interest to modern theologians of grace, whether as approved or as to be contested or at least modified. And so following their lead in what remains of this paper, I will look in turn at three main issues which I've identified in the second half of the, uh, of the handout. Three main issues, nature and grace, uncreated and created grace, and divine initiative and purpose to further the assessment of Aquinas as common doctor with regards to grace. Okay, so nature and grace. Aquinas figures prominently in what is arguably the central debate in 20th century Catholic theology, that over nature and grace, a debate inaugurated or at the least intensified with the publication in mid-century of Henri de Lubac's Surnaturel. How does nature stand to the supernatural? How are they linked? The participants in this debate put the relation of nature and the supernatural differently, and the two sides each claim the patronage of Aquinas, its own fidelity to, Aqu to Thomas. For de Lubac, there is a desire inscribed in the human by the creator, 
for the vision of God, that is, for the beatific vision, for seeing God as God is. This is the fundamental orientation of human being, a longing and an openness to knowing God as God is. In making this claim, the Lubeck asserts what, what can be called a double gratuitousness, although uh, to me, the Lubeck's gratuitousness would appear to be in fact triple. God needn't create, but freely does, and things come to be, they are. God needn't inscribe in this particular kind of creature a desire for a supernatural end, the knowing of God as God is, but God freely does. For de Lubeck, this marks the crucial difference between rational creatures who are spirit uh, from natural beings. Natural beings have an end that is connatural or proportionate in keeping with their natural powers as the sort of creature they are. Humans have, by God's creative act, a supernatural end, and they cannot attain that end by their natural powers. To reach that end, grace is needed. Grace comes from God, and God stands under no obligation to give grace. And yet, God does freely offer grace to humans, to those whom God has directed to the beatifying end that is God. It is up to individual humans in de Lubeck's telling to accept or reject that free offer of grace. The acceptance of that grace and living in accordance with it makes possible the attainment of the supernatural end. In The Mystery of the Supernatural, de Lubeck states that in putting forth the teaching of the natural desire for seeing the God who beatifies, he is after two things, simplicity and antiquity. With regards to simplicity, de Lubeck's foil throughout this book and the earlier Surnaturel is the early modern consensus worked out by such theologians as Cajetan and Suarez and still prominent in the 20th century. In that consensus, the desire that marks the human qua human is natural and the end that is sought by such desire connatural or proportionate in keeping with the nature and the powers of someone of that nature. And so the realization of that desire is possible for the human, does not extend beyond those powers. In that consensus, the desire is a natural desire for, uh, in that consensus, the desire is a natural desire for seeing God, not as God is, God in himself, but as cause of all natural effects. As for a desire to see God as God is uh, in the consensus position, that would be an elicited desire which is conditional. That desire is elicited through the engagement with natural things and seeking to know their source fully, and it is conditional to know the source in itself if that is possible. Going along with this assertion of a purely natural desire whose fulfillment lies within human powers is reflection on pure nature, that is, human nature as, 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 as abstracted from the actual existence of anyone living in history without regard for the concrete circumstances of an actual human or existence in sin or under grace. And yet, according to the teaching of those such as Kajitan, there is a possibility for another, higher end, one offered by God through grace to human beings. This God freely offers grace as ordered to eternal life to humans. And in the acceptance of grace, the desire of humans is transformed, elevated to the supernatural order, a supernatural desire provided by the habitual grace that is infused and the theological virtues infused with grace with an orientation of the God who beatifies, who freely wills to share God's life with humans. This transformation is congenial to the human as made in the image of God and endowed with capacities for thought and willing. Grace doesn't destroy nature, but perfects it. Actually, it may be preferable to refer here to the layering of desire and a layering of ends. 
the desire to know the God who is cause of natural things remains, can find fulfillment in this life, and final fulfillment in the next life, when God as cause is known perfectly through God's effects. To that desire and to that fulfillment is added supernatural desire and supernatural fulfillment, the desire for knowing God's essence and that perfect knowing itself in the next life. It is this teaching, dominant in Catholic theology from Cajetan on through Suarez to his own time, that de Lubac seeks to overthrow. It is wrong in details and complicates things too much, distinguishing too sharply nature from the supernatural, positing what is in effect a succession of desires, one natural, the other supernatural, or rather a layering of desires, making too little of the human qua human, as if humans aren't made by God in accordance with God's saving will, that is, to bring humans to God's own life, wallowing in the abstraction that is pure nature, and as if that is where the focus of a theologian should be put, treating as a result the supernatural as, in effect, some kind of add-on to a being that is more or less complete simply as human, able as human to come to an end, a proportionate end that is reasonably well-fulfilling, maybe even sufficient. And de Lubeck stresses, <coughs> the teaching of Cajetan and Suarez is a deviation, a departure in its main features from what can be termed antiquity, that is, the pre-modern teaching of the great theologians of the early and high medieval periods, the early period and high medieval periods, not least Thomas Aquinas. De Lubeck refer refers repeatedly to many early and medieval theologians as, holy, as holding what he holds, Irenaeus and Athanasius, Bernard of Clairvaux, Bonaventure, Duns Scotus, and not least St. Augustine, Think here of the famous, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. But it is Aquinas, uh, however, as very much the heir of Augustine, who has seemed to hold for de Lubeck pride of place. Aquinas is clear enough about what is at stake here and how he puts the teaching about desire and the ordering of nature to the supernatural and God's freedom and liberality jives perfectly with, confirms what Augustine and the others have said. Rhetorically, the avowed upholding of Aquinas makes great sense. What Cajetan and Suarez and their successors taught about a purely natural desire for a proportionate end, about pure nature, about two clearly distinct orders, the natural and the supernatural, that might be viewed as being in parallel, was in, their, was in their opinion based on Aquinas, on clear passages in Aquinas, as well as on his basic intuitions made by these later thinkers more explicit. Their teaching and their telling is Aquinas's. For de Lubeck, however, there's no such continuity, and their claim is a fall from Aquinas. In advancing what he advances about a natural desire for the knowing of God as God is and the like, it is de Lubeck who is faithful to Aquinas, recovering what Aquinas believes. God has made humans for God, to share in God, first by grace and then in eternal vision, preparing for this sharing by God's creating of humans, endowed by God with a desire for supernatural fulfillment. De Lubeck's reading of Aquinas was highly controversial and occasioned, and actually still occasions, considerable comment among those who consider themselves Thomist or Thomistic or whatever. As the sub... No, I'm sorry. As, as the subtitle of the collection of essays on Surnatural, edited by Father Benino, puts it, this is a controversy at the heart of 20th century Thomistic thought. 
The arguments pro and con have been momentous as well for the broader Catholic community of scholars and theologians. And Guy Mancini, for one, has suggested that Catholic theology in the 20th century might well be dated with reference to de Lubeck. Catholic theology in general is different after de Lubeck. Yet, it isn't only Catholic theologians who have been intrigued by the controversy over nature and grace, over the relation of of nature to the supernatural. Theologians of different denominations have learned from the controversy and have voiced their agreement with Lubeck. The two outstanding examples are the Anglo-Catholic theologian John Milbank and the Orthodox David Bentley Hart, both of whom are prolific and have wide readerships. Milbank has devoted a short book to Henri de Lubeck and the Renewed Split in Modern Catholic Theology, a book in which he rehearses de Lubeck's readings of Aquinas, takes issue, as had de Lubeck, with those who held to the older consensus, as well as with other Thomists who modify that older consensus but don't abandon it completely, and agrees with de Lubeck about the ingrained desire for God that is met by the God of grace. In such books as That All Shall Be Saved and You Are God's, Hart, uh, David Bentley Hart, shows his own agreement with de Lubeck about nature and grace. He also shows, and, his, and repeatedly, his disdain for those whom he deems two-tier Thomists, thinking their position has been completely overthrown by de Lubeck and the Nouvelle Theologie, to be sure, but also by the Russian Orthodox emigres in Paris at the mid-20th century. In Hart, incidentally, the foil is always the two-tier Thomists, not Aquinas himself. Aquinas receives little direct mention from him. Arguably, Hart has accepted the disjunction between Thomas and the old line Thomas that de Lubeck insists on. To the extent that they endorse de Lubeck, for Hart and Milbank, Aquinas too can be said to be the common doctor with regards to grace. I will return to Milbank and Hart towards the end of this paper, however, to show the limits of that particular allegiance. Okay, the next section, Uncreated and Created Grace. Karl Rahner, too, participated in the nature-grace debate, and his position matches up with uh, neither the standard school teaching nor that of de Lubeck. As in his Concerning the Relationship Between Nature and Grace, Rahner endorses important criticisms made of each side and proceeds accordingly to offer distinctive teaching. Ascribing a, teach, a desire for the supernatural to the nature itself does seem to Rahner to imply an exacting by the creature of God's grace, thus offending a God's freedom and the gratuity of grace. And in the standard school teaching, the supernatural does seem to be extrinsic for Rahner, not only apart from, but seemingly merely superimposed on a nature more or less closed in on itself. In his corrective, Rahner speaks of human nature and what belongs to human beings as human. To be human is to know, to want to know, to seek truth, and nothing finite or created as object of knowledge can satisfy the desire to know. Rahner also talks of existentials. Such are not definitional of the human as human as if part of the human's essential ontology. Rather, existentials are features of human being, of actual human existence that can mark life in the world. In this regard, Rahner identifies what he calls a supernatural existential. This is given by God to humans, to all humans, as Rahner insists, and is given as God's free gift. The supernatural existential is a modification of the human, a qualification of the human, such that humans, all humans, desire God as their end. Desire to know God as God is. Thus, there is no natural desire for God, as in de Lubeck, 
but a desire for knowing God nonetheless as the gift of God to all those who are human, actual humans. The supernatural existential does the work of de Lubeck's natural desire. Rahner's humans yearn for God, are open to God and God's further gifts, and are fulfilled only as aided by God, and eventually in the next life coming to God directly, immediately, and knowing God as God is. In Rahner's estimation, in positing the supernatural existential, this gift of God, he is meeting the pr principal objection to de Lubeck. Grace isn't exacted. Only a human so readied by God might respond in freedom and responsibility to God's offer of grace. And God so readies humans for that purpose, that is, to accept God's grace, which is freely offered to all. And, Rahner thinks, he is avoiding the extrinsicism of the standard school teaching. While humans qua humans may not be oriented to God as beatifying end, they as actual human beings are by God's gift of the supernatural existential. In God's meeting of that desire, yearning, and further gracious self-disclosure, God doesn't speak, indeed speak to humans as they actually are, as seekers after truth, as seekers after God. Which brings me to another aspect of Rahner's teaching of grace, his stress on grace as uncreated. For Rahner, grace is first and foremost the divine persons who call out to humans, who pour themselves out in love for humans, who when they dwell in humans exercise what Rahner refers to as a quasi-formal causality. For Rahner, grace is deeply personal. The three-person God who loves, expecting, calling for the love of humans, pattern on God's loving in response. Talk of created grace is correspondingly kept to a minimum. Rahner is not denying created grace outright. As in his summoned implications of the scholastic concept of uncreated grace, he posits a created disposition, that is sanctifying grace, that is simultaneous with divine indwelling, in fact caused by that divine indwelling. But elsewhere, and I hear I have foundations of Christian faith in mind, Rahner, in his enthusiasm for uncreated grace, can have little to nothing to say about created grace, about habitual grace and the infused virtues and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In so playing up uncreated grace, Rahner may be reacting to what may be the case in the standard school theology, an ignoring of uncreated grace, and even an exclusive emphasis on created grace, on what is in a human, as if that were the sum total of grace. <coughs> Rahner has been persuasive when it comes to uncreated grace. Recall in this regard Duffy, mentioned a long time ago, who is able to rebut a common criticism of Aquinas and likely does so because of the resemblance in this regard between Rahner and Aquinas. But Rahner's disinterest in created grace and attendant habits and their acts marks a significant departure from his period of master. And he is claiming to mystical inspiration here. And it comes at a cost. As noted by critics such as Gene Porter, it leaves Rahner's moral theology rather thin. Or as I would put it, it leaves the journey of the grace to God as their end on only imperfectly delineated. Loving, pattern on God's loving, <clears throat> is indeed important, but there's more to the journey than just love. <coughs> Excuse me. Anna Williams shares Rahner's enthusiasm <clears throat> for uncreated grace, but offers a more radical take on created grace. When Aquinas uses the term, which as Williams rightly notes, is itself only rarely mentioned in the Summa, he is not thinking of a something that is itself created, as if there were something that perfects the essence of soul or powers of soul. 
in her The Ground of Union, she is studying the respective teachings of Thomas Aquinas and Gregory Palamas on deification, conducting the inquiry with an ecumenical intent. In her reading, there is considerable agreement between Palamas and Aquinas, including in their common insistence on the presence and activity of the divine persons in deification, and that provides the key to parsing created grace. In assessing so-called created grace according to Aquinas, Williams draws the distinction between the uncreated, that is God, and the created, that is the human being, who is a creature of God. Grace always remains uncreated and only uncreated, that is personal, but can be said to be also created if the reference is to the human in whom God is at work. Divine being is present to the human, giving itself to the human, and the God who indwells works in accordance with the structures established in the creature as image of God. And so the indwelling God moves, leads the human person to acts of knowing and willing, in which through repetition, the Oops. in which through repetition the creature indwelt by God becomes habituated. The acts which increase the likeness of the creature to God and move the creature closer to the consummation, which in the next life will be marked by fuller assimilation to and union with God. Williams' interpretation is, in, is her response to standard issue orthodox critiques of the Western teaching of creative grace. As in Lasky, the Western created grace comes in for a hammering as a commodity that is detached from its divine source and subject to the manipulations of its human possessor, and more grievously, that makes for a kind of block on the personal involvement of God in the living and acting of the one on the way to God. That polemic misses the mark, but so too does William's interpretation. This recasting of created grace has been met with considerable skepticism from Bruce Marshall, for example, in the article mentioned earlier in the paper, and from Darius Bizzano in an appendix to her own study of deification in Aquinas. The grace that might be termed created cannot be read out of Aquinas' theology of grace. It plays an important role, as do the adjacent virtues and gifts, and it is hardly in competition with the divine persons. The hesitation of Williams and Rahner before habitual grace is instructive, and they are not alone in concentrating on uncreated grace. But I'll close this se section by observing that there are plenty of theologians who still take habitual grace and the attendant virtues and gifts seriously. Moral theologians such as Porter, Madison, Sherwin, they come readily to mind, but there are others. And as a reminder, the Catholic Catechism remains committed to grace as habitual gift. Okay, the final section. Throughout his the theology of grace, Aquinas is much concerned to uphold the primacy, the provenience of God. This is a point that has been made nicely recently by Father Benino, drawing on Aquinas' commentary on the Gospel of John in his contribution to the recent volume honoring Archbishop de Noia. Thus, in his account of conversion in the Summa, Aquinas stresses God's provenience, indeed God's efficacious provenience, in uh, first part of the second about 111, Article 2 of the Corpus, Aquinas shows how terminology received from Augustine, operative, cooperative, can be used of his own auxilium as grace and of habitual grace. In terms of operative auxilium, the effect is when God moves the mind and the mind is moved and does not move itself. And the great example of this, not the only example, but the great example of this, Aquinas notes here, is conversion. 
That take on operative exilium informs the subsequent discussion in question 112, articles 2 to 3, asking whether any preparation is required on the part of the human uh, for the grace of exilium or for the grace uh, that is habitual. With regards to the former, no. There's no disposition required on the part of the human. God simply gives exilium to whom God wills. With regards to the latter, habitual grace, yeah, there is a need for a preparation, a disposition uh, for the infusion of the form that is habitual grace. But Aquinas adds here, that disposition is itself due to auxilium. God by auxilium, operative auxilium, works the preparation for habitual grace. This, it can be noted, is a significant departure from a typical take on the slogan current in the 13th century, facienti quadens est, Deus non denigat gratium. In the typical take, it is the human who takes, as it were, the first step, who does his or her best. In Aquinas' presentation, the doing of one's best that precedes habitual grace is itself worked by God. God takes the lead. Aquinas can repeat the point elsewhere, as in the discussion in the second part. The second part, question six, article one, of the cause of faith. The ascent of faith is, he states here, from God moving man inwardly by grace. And divine provenience figures prominently in Aquinas' account of predestination, predestination, expressive as that is of God's wisdom and love. In God's eternity, God in God's love wills to share God's life with some humans, ordaining them in love to the beatific vision. And when the elect come into actual existence, God in love leads them to that end by grace and grace good acts. It is safe to say that at least some of the theologians considered in this paper have a different way of conceiving conversion and coming to faith, and with that, a different way of putting provenience. In De Lubeck and Rahner, there is a fundamental choice that must be made to accept or reject God's offer of grace, and that choice belongs to the addressees of God's offer. God's offer is provenient, and the coming to faith characterized as a response, but that act is not worked inwardly by God. As for predestination, in theologians such as de Lubeck and Rahner, Aquinas' understanding of predestination is left out of account. To the extent that they are receiving Aquinas' teaching on grace, it is as unmoored from such a teaching on predestination. From the perspective of Catholic orthodoxy, this is not necessarily problematic, and such unmooring has happened before. Thus, in its asserting of the teaching of the late Augustine on the beginning of faith and perseverance, both gifts, both due to God's efficacious acting, a teaching which Aquinas in the Summa repeats, Second Orange 529 left to the side how the late Augustine himself grounded the teaching on grace of conversion and perseverance in God's eternal predestination of some to salvation. To the best of my knowledge, the Church has never formally endorsed the Augustinian take on causal predestination. But neither has it, again, to the best of my knowledge, formally rejected that take on predestination. In his decree on justification, Trent outlaws certain errors on predestination, that one can be certain of one's election, that there's a predestination of some to hell, that God is implicated in the sinning that brings one to hell. But as for predestination itself, Trent is content to refer simply to the mystery of predestination and leave it at that. The Catholic Catechism echoes Trent's rejection of specific errors on predestination, but seems to go no further than that. 
there was seemed to be some concept, the conceptual room in the church for the position of the late Augustine and Aquinas, but room as well for those who leave such a teaching out of account or prefer to take the scriptural references to predestination otherwise. To the extent that a predestination would figure into Lubeck or Rahner, that would have to do with God's pl basic plan for human salvation through Christ and the opportunity for all to come to God through Christ, although not all will accept the offer of grace. Silence and reserve, however, is one thing. Open hostility is another. Both Milbank and Hart champion as authentic Christian truth the salvation of all. This isn't a hope that all will be saved. You know who I'm referring to here. But the, assi the assistance that all shall be saved. At the end of his book on de Lubeck, Milbank acknowledges that in positing universal salvation, he's going well beyond anything de Lubeck explicitly said. But he thinks that universal salvation is at least implicit in de Lubeck's analysis. Otherwise, the desire for the beatifying God instilled in the human being as part of the nature would indeed be in vain. God will provide the grace, and all will at some point accept the offer. Milbank's comments earlier in the book provide the underpinning for universal salvation. Does de Lubeck compromise God's freedom and so the gratuity of grace? Do the traditional Thomists better preserve that gratuity? Milbank expresses a kind of exasperation at the focusing on God's freedom. What matters for him the most is God's love, and that love isn't reserved for some, but is for all. David Bentley Hart offers a fuller account of universal salvation. That all should be saved is a rich, energetic, argumentative book, and Hart covers much. For my purposes, I'll focus on what Hart says about God's love, picking up on what Milbank has said and what Hart says about predestination. God is love. God's love is efficacious. God in love wills the salvation of all, and so all will be saved. Hart rejects the notion of a hell that is eternal. Any punishing that there might be would only be remedial and in keeping with God's love. And so ultimately, the end of all humans is heaven, eternal life, final deification and participation in God. Even if the decision for God, for God, not in, it comes in the present life, but in the afterlife. There is then for heart no place in Christianity for a love of God that is selective, restricted. Those who teach a predestination that is causal and only for some have seriously misunderstood scripture and botched what stands at the heart of the Christian message. In that book, Hart has many targets of complaint, including Thomas. He can even compare them unfavorably to Calvin and the Calvinists, who of course also fall under his attack. Calvin is open about double predestination. In eternity, God has decided where everyone will end up, some in heaven, others in hell. That's proof for Calvin of divine sovereignty and in accordance with God's plan. Thomists disguise this with their talk of God only allowing or permitting sin. I'm, I'm hard here, I'm not me. Uh, permitting sin, and then rendering to the sinner what that sinner deserves. Such is a subterfuge in Hart's estimation. The sinner goes to hell not only because of permission, but because of the withholding of the grace that is needed in the Thomistic telling to attain eternal life. To say that God creates all humans, some of whom will go to hell, is to ascribe cruelty to God. And the good God, the God of love, is by no means cruel. The case for the salvation of all as true Christian teaching that Hart and Milbank make has its attraction. To proclaim the salvation of all is to be true to the goodness of God 
and to the efficaciousness of God's love for all, and needs answering by those who wish to adhere more fully to Aquinas as a doctor of grace and adhere to the demands, I think, of Christian orthodoxy. In this light, Matthew Levering's study of teachings on predestination through the centuries, starting from Scripture, is timely and helpful. So too the volume of essays on predestination in the tradition, uh, Thomistic tradition, edited by Long, Nutt, and White. This is the conclusion. And so, there we have it. In terms of the question posed in the title of this paper, one can rightly answer that Aquinas, even today, is a doctor with regards to grace. But that answer stands in need of serious nuancing. There is a range in the commitment to the common doctor. For some, he is the common doctor whose lead is to be followed in a modern theology of grace. For others, Aquinas is a doctor, but one of many to, to be consulted in constructing a theology of grace. And going along with this, there are differing estimations about what in that 13th century theology of grace is to be retrieved affirmed, still to be viewed as useful. In some, it is the whole theology of grace that is upheld as vital, still able to inspire, to shape one's perceptions of God's involvement in the journey of the graced. In others, the reception has been selective and in varying ways. The echoing of Aquinas in this or that can be accompanied by a downplaying of other points or the simple ignoring of certain of his insights or at times, as just mentioned, even in the blunt rejection of other claims and doing so on religious and theological grounds. In short, a complex answer to what seemed at first a simple question. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.